This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. All right, welcome to On the Fence Physio. This is our sixth episode. I am your host today, Matt Owens, and I am joined by the pride of Penn High School here to talk about pain, Andy Wiseman. How are you doing today, Andy? Oh, Matt, I'm ready to bring the pain. And after that introduction, I feel like I can just uh, stay on the sidelines and listen and I'll, my, I'll be full of pain. You would be full of pain if I continued just talking all by myself. That's why I need you. So yeah. our discussion this past month on Twitter... Uh, centered around pain and with your patients, should you expose them to pain or should you avoid pain? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to talk about this, first we have to define what we mean by pain. So there's a couple different types of pain that we're typically concerned with in physical therapy. The first one that m- we try to treat most specifically when we're thinking about biomechanical or soft tissue healing principles is nociceptive pain. And this is pain that is defined as arising from an actual or threatening damage to non-neural tissue. Then there's also what we call neuropathic pain. And this is defined as pain caused by a primary lesion or disease to the somatosensory nervous system. And then third large uh, type of pain that we see a lot or talk about a lot is the central sensitization. So on that note, Andy, central sensitization. If you had to give us a million dollar word that your real doctor wife told you about, what would it be to describe central sensitization? All right, class, we're doing some vocab today. We're going to talk about supratentorial pain. So we're talking about pain that is generated north of the cerebellum. So these, this is our cerebrum area. We are talking about pain that is generated by cognitive and subliminal thoughts. So, um, for example, preconceived notions of an activity. If you have done an activity before and you have had pain while doing that activity, you are more likely to feel pain when you do the same said activity again. And having a conception of an activity as a painful thing is a wonderful learning mechanism evolutionarily. Um, If you touch something sharp and you cut yourself, you're probably not going to touch something sharp again. Unfortunately, sometimes it can get in the way. If we have patients who have associated a normally uh, totally safe and functional activity with pain, and now that activity reproduces pain for them on a regular basis, it can be really limiting. So... We need to not only address nociceptive pains, peripheral, peripherally generated pains, as you mentioned, but these ones that are a little bit more centrally generated, whether it be from the um, experiences of our patient 
or of their emotional or mental states that could potentially generate pain from a central origin, we need to understand how to identify and then also how to intervene in these cases. Yeah, and that brings us to our second million-dollar word for this podcast, epiphenomenalism. Epihoo? Epihoo, epiphenomenalism. So this uh, thought process or this idea, this, this word, defines um, things as not always being what they seem. So this could be, an example of this would be fear uh, seems to make the heart beat faster. Hey, but according, I have, I have a fear of I have a fear of speed bumps, but I'm slowly getting over it. <laughs> so according to epiphenomenalism, fear doesn't make your heart beat faster, but <laughs> the biochemical secretions of the brain and the nervous system, not the experience of fear, is what raises the heartbeat. So I think that speaking of fear, have you ever had uh, have you ever worried about making an appointment at a Native American venue? I have not. That's a reservation, reservation, reservation. Three reservations. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> no, keep them coming. Keep them coming. So back to epiphenomenalism and its role with central sensitization is that there's some things that are biochemically controlled and that our thought, conscious thought, might not... Um, have much influence on or may have a lot of influence on. So when we look at this type of um, complex interaction between thought, biochemical, psychosocial, neurological phenomenon coming together to all give us this experience of pain, where do we start? How do we start treating our patients who complain of pain? Andy, any wise (laughs) words for us? I guess any words I say end up being wise words. Um, My father said I was born a wise man, but he doesn't know what happened after that. So um, I think we need to treat this like scientists. You need to test, you need to retest, and you need to create a hypothesis and then test your hypothesis. So if you think that a certain part of your patient's pain is being generated by one of these drivers, and you probably can't say all of the patient's pain being generated by any one driver. It's probably a mixture we need to be able to identify though maybe which ones are the most limiting. So if we have a true supertentorial pain limiting function, we need to try to identify it and then we need to try to intervene with it, okay? We are not um, psychiatrists, we are not psychologists, we are not mental health counselors, but when we have supertentorial pains that are associated with movement, we are the movement experts. That is our realm to try to change how the body reacts to movement. So, for example, if you have a patient who has low back pain and they think that bending over to pick up weight causes pain and they have a preconceived um, concept that bending over to pick up weight, no matter what weight it is, is going to be painful. You ask them to pick up a 20-pound kettlebell. They go to pick it up. They immediately report pain to you. I, first of all, don't ask my patients about pain. I say, hey, how did that make you feel? And then they give me words like pain or fearful or, you know, nervous or I you know, thought my back was going to hurt even before I picked it up. Like you get the verbiage like that. 
then you try a novel stimulus because if your if your hypothesis is that a preconceived notion about lifting is causing the pain, then you need to try them in an activity they have no preconceived notions of. So one of the, my most common go-tos is a wall-assisted deadlift. So I put the patient's feet away from the wall. I have them put their hips back against the wall. And then I ask them to bend forward and pick up the exact same kettlebell. Okay, but this is a novel activity. They haven't done something like this before. They pick it up, they stand up. If your hypothesis is correct, they're going to be able to do that with less pain. They will not use the same verbiage. And you don't want to lead them and say, hey, was that better? Hey, did that feel better than trying to pick it up normal? No, you ask the exact same question. You say, how did that make you feel? And then if they give you a report that makes it sound like it's anything better, then you can confirm the hypothesis and say, hey, at least some portion of this pain was super tentorial. And this is something that we can intervene with by distracting the patient, by presenting novel stimuli, and then slowly progressing them and exposing them back to the whatever level they need to be. Um, graded exposure in low back pain was one of the articles um, I pulled up for the Twitter thread um, published in JOSBT. The idea is that we can use, just like psychiatrists and psychologists use, um, closer and closer activities to the activity that they're fearful of and slowly get patients ready to accept those activities and changing their con conceptions of those activities through small little baby steps towards there. Now, what if I say, but, but Andy, I can only lift 10 pounds. That's my, that's my self-imposed lifting restriction. If I lift more than 10 pounds, I'm sure my back will go out. What would you do or say to that patient to maybe convince them that they're stronger than they think? Okay. So this new patient is sitting in front of you telling you these things. This is the eval day. You do not want to challenge a patient's belief system directly. That is going to destroy any chance you have of creating a therapeutic alliance on that first day, which we all know is very important to do in pretty much any rehab field. So we need to not challenge that directly, but we do need to show them a um, bit of uh, evidence maybe that would make them question their belief, right? To cause a little cognitive dissonance would be ideal. So one of my ways to, again, kind of distract the patient from activity, present a novel stimulus and blind them to the results is I do a isometric mid-thigh pull with a crane scale, okay? So I have a bar affixed to a chain, affixed to the crane scale, affixed to the ground that the patient's standing on. They, I put the bar at mid-thigh level, they pull, I say, hey, just pull as much as your back can tolerate. You know, you don't have to have any pain, just pull. It's not gonna move anywhere. Um, then we get a number. And if that patient said like, hey, I can only lift 10 pounds, and they pull, pull on that dynamometer, and I'm like, wow, well that dynamometer just said you pulled 90 pounds right there. That's a little more than you thought, right? How'd that feel? <laughs> and maybe that biases the patient a little bit to think, oh, okay, well, maybe um, my back can lift a little more than I thought. And that is a really easy way to kind of, you know, start picking apart any of your patient's preconceived notions about what they can or can't do or what causes their pain or doesn't cause their pain. I like it. So we're causing a novel, doing a novel activity. Uh, we're distracting the patient possibly from their fear, and then we're tricking them into doing right. more than they think they can. So what if your hypothesis is wrong in that case, though, Matt? They have pain with 
no matter if you change the activity to be a novel stimulus or you blind them to the results of the activity and they still have the exact same pain, then what do you do? Well, I don't know. I'm screwed. Hypnosis. I'm going to hypnotize them into thinking they can they can do it. Is that a, well, a valid option? Might, it might be a true nociceptive pain that you need to modify the load of then or you need to modify – what how much you're loading that tissue so you're telling me that sometimes tissue can give me pain it's not all in my brain (laughs) it's not well all pain is generated by the brain you cannot experience pain without a brain although i have seen some people that make me question that (laughs) no i think you bring up a good point because we can get focused on the supra temporal parts of Mm -hmm. pain um, and forget that there are normal, um, protective healing responses in our tissues to injury. Mm-hmm. So when we have those types of pain or injury that go along with what we would expect, uh, that's when our knowledge of uh, soft tissue healing, uh, time frames, uh, our expertise in loading, gra- graded exposure, in how we're going to uh, progress patients from active assistive to active range of motion to loaded. That's when all that fun physical therapy, exercise prescription knowledge comes in into play and we can uh, help progress that person from where they are to where they want to be appropriately and safely. Sounds like you need to call the police. Oh, yes, police. I still People haven't heard about police. Maybe all you students out there have. Maybe all your seasoned clinicians have, but I still run into a lot of people. It's still rice or price, but police, Mm -hmm. police is now the, it's old. It's like three years old, five years old. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's not new new anymore. (laughs) It's not new, but police protect optimal loading gets Mm -hmm. two letters in it. And then we have our ice compression elevation, but acute injuries, police. That's your other mm-hmm. other nugget for today when we're thinking about how we're going to modulate and um, change the patient's pain experience. Right. So if you can use police and make a significant difference in the patient's pain, you can then maybe hypothesize that if you modified you know, preconceptions and you modified novel activities and it didn't change pain, but then you did police and it changed pain, hey – that's kind of lending you to think that your primary pain generator might be more nociceptive, which, as you said, does exist. We do need to know how to treat that too. Um, we do, as a profession, I feel like tend to get really hung up on some of these more complex um, thought-driven pains. It is totally, totally expected that you are going to have some patients that have a true <laughs> peripherally generated nociceptive pain that you can then do something about. And it is fine. Yep, those are my You're favorite not a bad types of PT pain. If you yes. treat that, <laughs> those are my favorite types of pain because I can treat so them. Much <laughs> They're so much easier. They're so much easier. So, what do you do with your patient who is of the mindset that no pain, no gain? Right, soreness is good. It's needed. I'm just going to push myself through these barriers, and it's going to help me get better faster. I throw journal articles at them until they stop having pain. (laughs) Um, So for example, right, um, 
another JOSPT article. Um, Jack Hickey was the lead on that one, talking about um, hamstring strain, pain-free versus pain threshold rehabilitation and acute hamstring strain. So they had one group that went pushed into pain. Um, they set the pain based on bass. Um, and they had another group that had to do everything pain-free. If they, they did the exact same activities, but they were only allowed to do them to an intensity that was pain-free, and the other group was allowed to push to like a 4 out of 10 pain. They had their primary outcome that they measured was return to play or cleared to return to play by the treating therapist. And there was no difference in between the two groups. Pushing into pain or not pushing into pain did not get you back to sport any sooner. You look at one of the secondary outcomes, they did have a little bit more hamstring strength in the painful group, painful group. But I don't know how many athletes come to me and are more concerned about I want my hamstring to be strong versus I want to get back to playing. So that is a better primary outcome. And I don't know if the study was powered appropriately for secondary outcomes to matter all that much. So I think what we should take away from that is saying like, hey, not all cases do you need to push into pain or does it matter if it's pain free? It probably doesn't matter that much in many cases. Yeah. And I, th I think that's a great point. And I'll bring in some, I would say, more gray area of pain versus no pain and talking about scraping or instrument assisted soft tissue mm -hmm. mobilization. And even sometimes the prevailing thought, I would say today, still among patients who enjoy it or ask for it, uh, is that it needs to pain be painful, it needs to hurt. Uh, many clinicians that use that modality uh, also ascribe to that heavier pressure is better. Uh, but mm -hmm. based on basic science research and the proposed mechanism of how scraping works, moderate pressure provided just as much macrophage and fibroblast activity as heavy pressure. Now, do we know, does that actually what's causing a change or helping? Eh, I don't know, but it would give some credence to the thought of, okay, even with a manual technique that people believe should be painful to work, mm -hmm. pain necessarily isn't what's causing the change. So do you ever wonder if there's an anchoring effect of some of these painful treatment methods? So if a patient is experiencing four out of 10 pain, let's just say, and then you do a treatment that causes them to be at like nine out of 10 pain, right? And then you take that treatment away. They experience a decrease in pain afterwards, but did they go below that four or have they maybe just changed where they anchor their pain now that they've experienced something that is more painful? Yeah, I love that did idea. You, with both did you manual, trick the yes, with manual therapy techniques, with exercise techniques mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I like the idea of anchoring effect. Do we have any research that you know of on the anchoring effect of no manual or uh, exercise interventions? No, but one of my uh, you know PT career heroes, Eric Mara. Please follow him on Twitter, Instagram, whatever you choose to use, um, and pester him about this. But he has proposed this idea multitude of times in a couple of different venues, but has yet to actually do anything with that theory. I have no idea. I have no idea about what kind of research methodology you would set up to try to prove, disprove, find out anything about 
about that hypothesis. It just, you know, like I've sat, I've thought about it. I've, um, I've showered at a Ramada Inn to try to get the best idea for it. Um, but it didn't Aren't you supposed come- to do like uh, Holiday Inn Express? Holiday, oh, that was why I didn't get it. Gosh, I need to pay attention to these commercials a little better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just got bed bugs instead. Should have saved that Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> So I have no idea how you would set that up methodologically um, because I don't know how you would create a control. I don't know how you create a sham to say like, hey, if you if you get someone to 10 out of 10 pain, will they report that their resting pain is more or less? Um, so maybe that's what you have to do is you have to have um, you have to have two groups that all have, you know, a normal uh, some amount of chronic pain. You need to take one group to like 10 out of 10. You need to take the other group to maintain their current level. But then I don't even know if that really proves that you're changing their anchor point. Like so, I don't, I don't, I have no idea. So all of you PhD candidates out there or want to be PhD candidates, it can be your first research project. It sounds not complicated whatsoever. <laughs> But no, I like that idea and whether proven or unproven in the research, I think it's at least something to be aware of when we're providing either manual treatments or exercise interventions that the stimulus that we're giving to the patient may change just on a pain perception level, Mm -hmm. how they're feeling, what they're experiencing. Right. It's it's an alternative explanation. Um, Anytime that you're providing any treatment, and you think, ah, I did X treatment, they felt better afterwards, therefore X treatment was the right treatment to do. That is a post hoc fallacy. It's not true. <laughs> you can't say that unless you actually do, you know, like you go back in time, you use the exact same patient in the exact same context, and you do something else with them, <laughs> and you have a difference, right? So we can often find ourselves falling into postdoc fallacies because it's very clinical. It's very easy for us to do. And it's also very easy to confirm that with patients because patients want to feel better too. And they want you to think that you're making them feel better because most patients are trying to please their therapist and please themselves. So we just always need to have in the back of our head a couple of what are the alternative hypotheses? What could have possibly actually made the difference in this patient pain? Is the only reason the thing that I did or could there be another explanation? So uh, pain anchoring, I think, is something we should all think about. But yes, please, if someone with more than the half a brain that Matt and I have between us Venus, can come yes. up with a good um, way to evaluate that, to um, measure that in some way, to uh, anything, any bit of information on that, be much appreciated. I, I will, I will throw, I will throw money at you. I will get one of those guns that shoots dollar bills and spray it all over your body. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Nice. All right. Any other thoughts that you would like to touch on regarding exposing your patient to pain or avoiding pain? Um, we got to talk about emotional states. Um, when you're discussing pain, um, life stressors, current emotional states are extremely important. Um, Alex Hutchinson's book. He's a he's a great author about endure they're talking about endurance athletes what limits us um from performing activities for long periods of time whether it be running or other things looked at 
a group of professional German cyclists. One of them, um, they were all pedaling a max out cycle test as fast as you can for as long as you can with an incentive to win because I think there's like some cash prize attached to it. So they all wanted to win. Half a group had a screen in front of them that was flashing a smiling human face at such a high rate that it can only be perceived subliminally. The other group had a frowning face. The frowning group quit 20% sooner than the smiling face group. That can lend us to the idea that your emotions or even the emotions of people around you can change how you feel, change how you perform physically. So we do need to take those into account. If your patient had a really rough weekend and they come in on Monday and they have more pain, it's really easy to try to just blame it on the bad weekend. It is definitely a, a thing. We can consider that as part of it. And you can educate your patient about how life stressors can increase their pain. But if you try to just point your finger at that and say, like, that's the only cause, that's a very bold strategy, Cotton. I don't know how it's going to pan out for you. <laughs> sure. uh, it is important to consider. Again, it's another alternative hypothesis thing. If your patient's just in a really good mood, they just got promoted at their job, they just met the love of their life. Or maybe you just hit them with a really good wordplay and they're laughing, right? That can change how they perceive their pain too. So your whatever intervention you did, exercise, manotherapy, neuromuscular re-ed, um, crystals, whatever you did might not have actually been the thing that changed how they perceive their pain. It could just be that you put them in a better mood. Yeah. I think that's important for us as clinicians to realize that how we interact with patients is important important likely to how they feel and the energy that we bring to a treatment session, the positivity we bring, the types of questions we ask and the subjects that we bring up and talk about are also important. Maybe uh, you don't want to avoid the topics of politics and religion just because they're taboo, but maybe because in today's world right now, they're also somewhat depressing pain generators <laughs> pain generators so maybe don't talk about the pandemic or try to find other things so i think that's something a good reminder a, a, a clinical reminder that you could take back tomorrow all right how am i interacting with my patients just from a positivity energy standpoint that could affect their pain yeah I think that covers it. You need, with in regards to exposing or avoiding, you need to assess it. You need to see what kind of pain it is. You need to figure out to the best of your ability, and that can be really tough on um, students and their clinical affiliations. But you have to learn how to do it. It's just part of the part of the gig. Outpatient physical therapy. You've got to be able to do it. And once you have figured that out, that's when you can then make your decision if exposing or avoiding are the best are the best tools for you to use for that opportunity. For, for sure. For sure. So what is our next topic going to be, Andy? Our next topic is going to be about physical therapy metrics. Are they important? Which ones are important? I think I'm on the fence about that. I'm on the fence if any of them are important. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometime, at some point in your career, you are going to have a meeting with some person who's your you know, higher up or your higher ups, higher ups, or your higher ups, higher ups, higher ups, higher up. And they're going to tell you that this number was low or this number was too high. And what are you going to do about it? 
I want to, I want us to talk around what are the important metrics to follow in physical therapy? What are the common ones that are followed? And please join in our conversation, join Twitter at, at OTF physio, please share your thoughts. If you're a, if you're an employer and you track these metrics, what ones do you track in your company? Which ones do you think are important? What do they say about patient care? What do they say about quality of customer service? What do they say about the efficiency of your therapists? We want all your thoughts on this. We want to have a good discussion around it. Let's get some people involved this month. For sure. So with that, I'm going to leave you with a lovely poem by our very own Andy Wiseman about pain. Sometimes when you train, you could get a sprain or strain something you experience or something you feign in the periphery or in the brain so push yourself hard or abstain pain is just too hard to explain beautiful beautiful all right everyone a little bit (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening thanks andy for the uh wise words as always and your insights i'm looking forward to next month's discussion already. Bye-bye, man. See ya.